This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Rolf Nelson. And me, Joe Hardy. Welcome to the show. So, Joe, why did we start this podcast? Well, Rolf, I mean, I think we both like to listen to podcasts, and we think that we have some interesting things to say about uh, psychology and cognitive science and thought maybe some other people might want to listen to it as well. So we figured, hey, let's let's get together and, and record a podcast. And if other people think it's cool and want to listen, that's great. And if they don't, we'll have fun <laughs> talking about uh, interesting topics and, you know, the future uh, of brain science and interesting things that are happening in uh, neuroscience and psychology today, how they might relate to some of the big questions that we've contemplated over over the years. Yeah, so uh, what kind of things are we interested in? Maybe that's worth talking about a little bit. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, you know, so Rolf and I, we, for those of you in the audience, uh, we're graduate students together at the University of uh, California at Berkeley in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I met, met there in the cognitive psychology program. And at that time, you know, it was... A group of us there who were interested in a lot of different things related to not just the sort of nitty-gritty details of uh, the, psycho- the the specific research projects that we were working on, but but also you know what the implications for understanding the brain might be for for society and for the future of of humanity. And I think that we've continued that conversation over the years, and you know topics were. You know, like artificial intelligence, for example, how that relates to how we understand the brain and, and how that would impact the development of technology, how that technology development might impact the future of the brain and, and, and society. Obviously, we're always interested in the robo-apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah, and I mean, we have lots of different interests, and I think we can assemble all of these interests together in, an, in a in a maybe a novel kind of a way. I We both certainly have an interest in technology and how technology can affect what it's like to be human. One of the courses that I love teaching the most is a course on human consciousness. And in order to understand consciousness, you need, you need to understand all different sorts of fields. The way that Human consciousness is affected by uh, technology is certainly one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we also like to play video games. We like video games. So it's always a good thing to think about how video games and, and you know, kind of interactions that you have with computers that are video game-like might change the brain or how that might be a model for virtual worlds that we might exist in in the future. You know how how our interactions with computers and uh, multimedia environments like video games might change us. Uh, how that might affect society moving forward. And of course, we always like to talk about visual illusions. Although I yeah. wonder how I wonder how successful we'll be at bringing that's visual, tough over, visual that's illusions tough over a podcast, into a podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a, it's a shared interest, and I think it's cool. I mean, the reason why I like visual illusions or illusions of of any type is that it really shows us uh, something important about our experience of the world, which is that we're not experiencing the world directly, but rather our experience of the world is filtered through our senses, 
so our, our biochemistry, electrophysiology are impacting the way that we experience the world. And that's where a lot, a lot of our expertise lies, I think, is in that interface between the world and, and the perceptual processes of the brain. So how information gets in and crucially, like you say, how things are, in, are interpreted and sometimes misinterpreted. So we often like visual illusions because they show us how the visual system works. And what is constantly coming out are different ways in which the brain processes information incorrectly or it makes all kinds of mistakes and these kinds of mistakes are illuminating we might think of them as as limitations that that our brains aren't perfect but it also it highlights the unique way that our brain interfaces with the world and it tells us a lot about how things work every day around us i mean the uh application of cognitive biases and Economics is a huge field. So much of, of economic theory now has to take into account the way that people actually process information and the mistakes that people make. So I think psychology has had impacts in a lot of domains and areas that, that, that may not be obvious to, to everyone, but are, I think, fun to talk about. And we could mention, we don't have to mention, I guess, because I don't really want to get into political things too much, but of course there are some political implications to the way that human thinking and decision-making works, that maybe our decisions at the polls aren't necessarily based on the kind of logical thinking that we believe they are, and the kind of impact that technology has, such as Facebook presenting news to us, is not, it doesn't really operate in the way that we think it does. We think we're taking in information in an unbiased sort of way. And there's certainly been a lot recently that indicates that technology can manipulate us. Yeah, no question about that. And, uh, you know, the, the old uh, economic thinking uh, of like rational actors mm-hmm. and also political science sort of thinking where people are behaving in a rational manner and that's how you end up with the results that you end up with is obviously wrong. And, and at this point, so obviously wrong that it's almost not even worth talking about. But I think we should we should keep our discussions of that to either something that is illuminating about the brain and psychology, or somehow re- re- leads to the robo apocalypse. Because I can't mm-hmm. I can't uh, conscience you know, I can't conscience bringing another podcast into the world that talks about Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I I'm, ra- <laughs> I'm ra- so I'm many raged out. I'm I'm raged out. There's so many of them. I listen to a lot of them, and they're they're just it's amazing. There's so there's a million million of them. Yeah, I just can't. I yeah, well, I'm not even going to comment. I'm not even going to comment on my comments on that. I was going to say something about tribalism and that, but I'm just not, I'm just going to stop myself. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good. Maybe we can start. Uh, you know, thinking about today's episode. Yes. On today's episode, we're going to talk about brain computer interfaces. The inspiration for this was, I think, you brought up the company that Elon Musk has that's interested in far future kind of technology. Um, Neuralink. Neuralink. Yes. So Neuralink is uh, this idea that that Musk has about connecting brains directly to machines and using that connection in this far future world for some pretty crazy concepts. 
where people can communicate directly over the internet, I guess, if you <laughs> if it's probably not going to be the internet at that point, whatever it is, directly through computers, people can have essentially direct communication without any need to do arcane things like speak or type. Mm-hmm. Boring stuff. Boring stuff like like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's some really cool concepts that that brings into 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 the discussion from the actual interfaces themselves, the the brain machine interfaces themselves, which are pretty interesting to talk about even in today's technology. And then some really really interesting philosophical topics of what this means for the future and the present, actually, of, of how we think and communicate. What I think might be a good way to go about this is to first consider the realistic state of the art in the field to give a little bit of grounding about how brain-computer interfaces operate now, the really the best kinds of brain-computer interfaces operate now, and then think about how that might apply to Elon Musk's vision and what some implications could be if it was successful or what some limitations, some absolute limitations might be that would stop this from progressing. So the name of the paper that we were interested in talking about is one that's done by some, well, it's done by a larger collaboration of scientists who are working on, they're working with a system called BrainGate, which is a neural implant system that implants uh, electrodes directly onto the surface of the brain and records brain activity as it's happening. And the immediate goal for this kind of thing is for impaired patients, so uh, paralyzed, people who have some kind of paralysis that doesn't allow them to move their limbs so that they can interface with a computer cursor or some sort of technology so let's see so the name of the paper and it's a it's a pretty technically oriented paper but the ideas behind it are pretty cool it represents a pretty substantial collaboration there are i don't know how many 29 29 authors yeah so it's david brandman and 28 of his closest friends 28 of his very closest friends a bunch of whom are from brown university still and then some from uh Mass General in Boston, some from Stanford, Case Western Reserve University, all over the place. Yeah, the title is Rapid Calibration of an Intracortical Brain-Computer Interface for People with Tetraplegia. Yeah, Published I mean, just earlier this year in Journal of Neural Engineering. Yep, so it's the cutting edge, latest and greatest stuff, and it's something that has been around since we were in graduate school. People were talking about this exact topic, doing mm-hmm. this exact work in 1997, and here we are in 2018, and they're still making progress, but I have to say, honestly, rather slowly uh, relative to other things, if you think about what the, can practically be done with these uh, interfaces at the moment. So I think it's worth just diving into the paper a bit and, and getting at what can we actually do today with systems that directly connect the brain to machines. That's what this brain-computer interface is all about. Yeah, so let's just dive right into it. What's the major finding of this paper? What's, what are they really trying to do here? 
So what they're really trying to do is take these brain-computer interfaces, in this case, these are intracortical brain-computer interfaces. These are electrode arrays that they're implanting directly in the brain and recording activity from the brain and using that recorded activity to control a cursor on a screen, so like a computer cursor on a screen in patients who are paralyzed. And what they're trying to do in this particular paper is they're trying to come up with a system that more rapidly gets that cursor control into closed-loop control by the patient. So essentially, essentially what they're doing is testing out their way of calibration, so a better way of calibrating so that these patients can more quickly interface with the computer. That's right. It takes them a little less time. And that's, you know, that's a substantial thing. Here we have where they're putting these arrays. So both arrays were placed on the dominant precentral gyrus. In T10, one array was placed in the dominant precentral gyrus, and a second was placed in the dominant caudal middle frontal gyrus. Now, this just means that they were placed on the motor cortex, the motor cortex being the strip on the center front of the brain that is just preceding a motor movement. So it's, if you were to take an electrode and zap it, you could get a motor movement somewhere in your body. And it's, it's mapped in a particular sort of way such that things that are next to each other on the motor cortex are next to each other on the body. So this is the homunculus. And you, the homunculus. <laughs> we, can't, we can't skip over this part of the conversation without talking about the homunculus because mm-hmm. it's just such a great word. The homunculus is the basically, homunculus. yes, say it many times. The, uh, the, this is the, the, the representation in the brain, spatially, uh, of the body. So if you think about it, there's a relationship, as, as Rolf said, between a place in the brain and a place on the body. So if, if, you, if there's a neuron that's, that's representing a movement in a particular part of the body, say your thumb, then a neuron close by might represent uh, a movement in your index finger, for example, on the same hand. And this uh, a homunculus in the sensory cortex, and there's also a homunculus in the motor cortex. And so, yeah. so yes. So the sensory cortex is just nerves from all over your body. If you were to, say, pinprick your the end of your thumb, you'd get some action in your sensory cortex at a particular place. And if you were to pinprick the end of your index finger, you'd get a, some action just nearby. And it's, it's again, laid out in that um, homunculus. And places with more sensory input have more representation on the sensory cortex. So in other words, your tongue, pretty sensitive part of your body, lots of discrimination there, has a pretty big representation. Your back, on the other hand, has a pretty sparse representation. Even though your back is fairly large on your skin, it doesn't take up much room in your sensory cortex. And the fact that we know that the brain is laid out kind of like this helps us a little bit as we think about building interfaces to control machines because we have a sense of where to put devices that record electrical activity and how those devices may be stimulated by things that you think about 
which is how these interfaces work, basically. And it's inter it's it's worth knowing this too about these interfaces because it's different than just recording from just anywhere in the brain, because again you're recording to you're recording from the area just prior to where the motor movement is being sent out to the body. So if there are connections from the motor area that go out, you know, through your uh, through your neck and through your arm and all the way down to your finger where that motor movement might be happening you can stimulate anywhere along this pathway and if you stimulate it right you can cause that kind of motor movement so we're selecting the first place in the brain that we can get to which is the sort of the simplest representation that we could have absolutely and, and it's helpful from a surgical perspective that this uh, motor strip is located in a place that you can access, which is, you know, uh, this outer cortical layer where you can, if you cut open the skull and you just lay down this electrode array, you can kind of just place it right, almost right on top of the brain, be able to record some pretty good activity related to uh, motor movements. Let's see, on this paper, they say that the electrodes are 1.5 millimeters in length. So that's how much is going directly into the cortex. You're just kind of popping this chip on top of your motor cortex and it's recording from it. Exactly. And, and 1.5 millimeters into the brain with silicon. And the idea is that you don't want to destroy too much brain tissue. Mm -hmm. And this would be, this would be something that I don't want to skip ahead to the Elon Musk vision of this, but if you can imagine covering up more cortex, you're really going to, you're going to using something like the current technology, you're just going to destroy a lot of the cortex by plugging this stuff in. And in addition, you're really only reaching that outside. Biomaterials is a big part of this. The development of biomaterials that are biocompatible is huge. This particular paper doesn't get into that, but maybe we can talk a bit more about biocompatibility when we talk about the Musk uh, topics. Yeah, and that's, I think, the point of view that he's coming from is we try to engineer that if you can engineer some really cool technology to play around with, then it'll get used in interesting ways. And so the limitations here around these electrodes, if you can fix that, then then maybe all of the scientists working on brain-computer interfaces like this have something better to play around with. Okay, so then... The next big step, and this is an area where there's a lot of progress, and well, I guess this is where a lot of progress comes from, is is the mathematical bit, so signal processing. So I'll, I'll read the raw description so you can see how this actually sounds. So further signal processing and neural decoding were performed using the XPC target real-time operating system. So they're using something from, I think, MATLAB, and then they do a whole bunch of signal analysis here. Raw signals were downsampled to 15 kilohertz for decoding and denoised by subtracting an instantaneous common average reference using 40 of the 96 channels on each array with the lowest root mean square, et cetera, et cetera. Then they'd bandpass and do all this stuff. So it, there's a lot of work here in just filtering out the irrelevant stuff that's going through these this 93, or sorry, 96 electrodes. Uh, into something that could be useful. Oh, here, here's a great line. I like this. 
The denoised signal was bandpass filtered between 250 hertz and 5000 hertz using an eighth order non-causal Butterworth filter, which is, you know, what I usually use. <laughs> that's my favorite type of filter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, that's just saying that they're trying to select out the bits that matter. And the, the signal that they're trying to work with is essentially these neural signals, which is electricity. So these neurons in the motor cortex are, we call it, we, as, you know, we always talk about firing, the idea of firing uh, of a neuron. And uh, it's, it's as, I, I'm trying to, as I'm trying to explain this, it, I'm going down this mental rabbit hole of like... I have a mental image of how this stuff is happening too, and it's hard to, it's maybe a little hard to describe. So it's worth, for those who may be less familiar with it, so the the way that, most neuroscientists think of how the brain works is there's a functional unit, the neuron, and neurons essentially take in a signal from other neurons, and then if they get activated enough, send the signal on to the next neuron. Now, neurons are constantly firing in your brain, so every neuron in your brain is basically firing just about all the time. It's just increasing or decreasing the number of times that it's firing. And this is, you know, sort of the, the language of thought. This is what constitutes activity in the brain. So the neuron is reaching a certain uh, level. I'm missing the word right now. Polarization. Polarization, yeah. Thank Polarization. You. Yes, that was the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah, so the, the idea is that when the neuron, quote-unquote, fires an action potential, this occurs when the electrical valence of the inside of the cell to the outside of the cell reaches a certain threshold. And at that point, this triggers a chemical cascade that results in essentially electrochemical signal being sent from one part of the neuron to another part of the neuron. And, that and, and this is crucial. Brain. This is crucial that you say electrochemical too, because it's, I remember as, you know, an undergraduate student trying to wrap my head around the idea that it's electrochemical. So it is not, crucially, it's not just an electrical signal that's traveling from one point to another. One of the, I think one of the best ways of explaining it that I've had is that if you, if you took a blue whale, largest animal on earth, it would take about a second for a neural signal to go from the brain to the tail and then another second for that signal to go back to the brain. So it is not an, inst an essentially instantaneous process like electricity traveling along a wire. It's, a right, it's not traveling at the speed of light. Like a, it's, it's not electrons traveling. It's, it's exactly. ions traveling down this uh, biomechanical uh, tube. So somewhat limited, and the brain can take advantage of this in certain sort of ways, but it's different than an elect electronic circuit. And I think that might be a critical point that uh, I think some engineers are less appreciative of. It's not an idealized signal that just zips from one neuron to the next. The timing element is tricky. Right, and not all uh, neuro communication is done with action potentials either. Probably when they you know, when they're talking about these very high frequency changes, I mean even their band passes like at pretty high frequencies. In other words, activity that's happening many times a second, changes in elect electrical uh, 
activity that are happening many times a second. You're, you're talking yeah, about so a, this is a, a I have a question for you. This is something I wasn't as maybe I am not interpreting this in exactly the right way. So, OK, so this is that complex sentence that I said. The denoise signal was bandpassed filtered between 250 hertz and 5000 hertz. So a neuron fires something in the order of one hertz to a thousand hertz. In other words, between one time a second and a thousand times a second. Now what they're doing here is they're taking out, from what I'm understanding, if it's bandpass filtered, they're taking out everything below 250 hertz and above 5000 hertz. So what kind of signal are they really working with here? It's not, it doesn't seem as though it's the same as actual neurons firing. Well, they're not looking at individual neurons firing. They're, it's definitely an ensemble kind of, of, of approach. And they're looking at even, so if they have the, you know, was it 96 electrodes? Yeah, 96 electrodes. Each of those electrodes is recording from essentially the activity of many, many, many neurons. And, and they're overlapping the, you know, the, the output or the input into these arrays, you know, overlapping sets of input from many, 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 many neurons across this, this area. There's lots and lots of cells in this small space. I guess what I was surprised at is that I know that there's a lot of neural synchronization at lower frequencies than 250 hertz. So certainly there's lots of synchronization at 40 hertz. And if you look at EEG signals that people are looking at, they certainly look at a lot below 250 hertz. But here they're just kind of chucking all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's it must just be the case that um that they're able to find interesting signals there. I think that might make sense then to jump right into how the system is set up. In other words, what people are doing that is leading to the to the building up of the features that they're using to to control the device. So you're talking Butterworth filters. No, I'm talking about like. I don't know. I'm just. I just like saying Butterworth. Filters. I know Butterworth filters is is, is awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's kind of cool to think about what people are actually doing. So the patients who are all paralyzed, essentially from the neck down, uh, two of them essentially completely paralyzed from the neck down, and one of them severely impaired. The presumably they can still. So, okay, so if they're all paralyzed from the neck down, they can still use their eyes. So there might be other ways that they're communicating. Well, they can talk, too. That's important because... That is what, important. You know, what, what, what they're saying here in the paper is that this is... They keep talking about locked-in patients and how this could really help locked-in patients. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing that? Why are they talking about helping locked-in patients? Well, I mean, the patients that they're, quote-unquote, helping with this research don't really need it because... There are mm -hmm. way better ways to control devices than <laughs> what they're doing, right? Because speech it, it, recognition, they could just use right. speech recognition yeah, if they exactly. wanted. You're trying to spell out a word with a cursor uh, that has eight like input points, or you could just say the word. One thing I noticed is in maybe it was in this paper, maybe it was in a separate paper, but the top speed that we're talking about here in terms of characters is somewhere between three and six characters per minute. Right. So, the, so imagine typing at that speed. Yeah, exactly. Again, the it's whole point slow. here is that you have a, 
you're controlling some sort of cursor that can point to things on a computer monitor with your mind, which is amazing. And then you can basically spell out words or you know, control a robotic arm or whatever it is that you can do with a cursor. But you can do it very coarsely and very slowly mm-hmm. because the, the representation uh, that we can effectively capture with, a, with, a, with our current technology is, is, is gross and not that awesome. So, yeah, but I mean, the, the, the point I was trying to make there was just that these patients are paralyzed from the waist down. So it's cool to be able to control devices. Or from the neck down, right? Sorry, yeah. These, these patients are, are paralyzed. These patients are paralyzed from the, the neck down. So it's cool for them to be able to control devices that can help them in the world. However, this is not the most efficient way to do that. They could control them with their neck, you know, with their chin, for example, moving their, chi- their chin and controlling a joystick with like that. Sometimes people do that or even their tongue. Mm-hmm. Eye, movements. eye movements. Speech, et cetera. Speech. So, yeah. yeah. The, the point that I think of, of using these types of patients, however, is that they don't need their motor cortex anymore. Mm. Right? So that's how you can get human subjects approval for doing this research on these patients because they do not need this part of their brain anymore. It's not doing them any good. I know that's a really interesting that's a really interesting point. I'm guessing that's how they got this done. And and then but then they have to justify the research by saying this is really something that would help locked in patients. So patients who can't speak mm-hmm. can't move their eyes really effectively. So it's still on the order of basic research and it doesn't it's still not reaching that yeah. useful applied the stage. This is the state of the art, and there's no practical application for it. Yeah. And this is, again, more than 20 years on from when this base, this exact field of research and line of thinking started to take very serious uh, steps forward. So it's, it's although, moving slowly. <laughs> just say that. Although I think they, when we saw this stuff, they were only using third-order non-causal Butterworth filters, and now they're up to eight. So that's like one order every uh, four years. Okay, so let's move on in the paper now just to get some more details of what it's like for the actual patients and what they're actually doing here. Yeah, maybe describe the the way, you know, what they're yeah, what the patient is doing. Okay, so here's a description from the paper. So the calibration tasks. Task queuing was performed using custom-built software Running MATLAB, the participants used standard LCD monitors placed about 60 centimeters from them. Participants engaged in the radial eight task as previously described. Now, if I'm thinking of this correctly, they have a cursor in the center of the screen, and their task is to move it to one of eight locations that's directly out from them. Correct. Briefly, targets were presented sequentially, alternating between one of eight radially distributed targets and a center target. Successful target acquisition required the user to place the cursor within the target's diameter for 300 milliseconds, about a third of a second, before a predetermined timeout. Okay. And they did this calibration task for a few minutes. 
Yeah, and and the idea is that the patient imagines some motion that they would make that would correspond in a, a intuitive way, intuitive for them. It's only important that it's intuitive for them. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter that anybody else would understand it. In some intuitive way, a motion that would correspond to somehow moving in this space. So, for example, they could imagine, I think one of the examples they used was moving your whole arm from left to right, outstretched, pointing, with your finger pointing straight. So point, taking, your, taking your arm, sticking it out, pointing straight, and then moving it left or right. Or controlling a joystick to with your fi- hand. So imagining... Yeah, imagining, imagining moving that movement. hand. Yeah, imagining moving some motor movement, whether it be moving your whole arm, moving a joystick, or moving a mouse. Or there was another one, another uh, approach that they used. They think they use five different approaches. And basically, what they try to do is figure out when a person thinks about moving their hand or their arm in a particular direction, what signals can we extract? from this electrode array that corresponds to that thought. And then how do we use those features, those signal features, to then direct the mouse, I mean, direct the cursor in that specific direction that we're indicating. So they're indicating that you should move the cursor to the left. You think about moving your hand to the left or your arm to the left. And then based on what we're extracting from the neural signals associated with that thought, we're training an algorithm to tell the cursor to move in that direction. Now, it's interesting to think about the limited amount of motion that you're really talking about, given the huge amount of signal that you're processing. Yeah, I know. I I thought it was super interesting that, like, for example, one patient chose to use the idea of a joystick. And they talked about some other research where it was patients were using the thought of moving a mouse and then actually clicking a mouse. Like a mouse click was actually something that they could extract features from, like an imagined mouse click. They could feel themselves going through that motion. Right. Try to simulate it by, by thinking about it in as much detail as possible. Yeah. And then somehow at the end of all that, the researchers were able to extract a neural, uh, neural signal that, that they could process to, to then cause a, a reliable action on the computer screen. Now, obviously, this is a league apart from decoding a complex thought that's recruiting a substantial portion of your brain. I mean, this is condensing all of the neural activity that's going on in you know those 85 billion neurons in your brain down to a couple bit signal. Yes. And also, it's interesting that there's no sense in which this approach is trying to make any meaning out of any of these neural signals, which is very different than what you would need to do to do what you're talking about, to like decode a thought. Right. There's no way that you can look at that signal and say, oh, Huh, funny, now now he's thinking about a joystick, whereas before he was thinking about moving his arm over that way. At all. It's, it's purely algorithmic in the sense that when that person is thinking that thought, 
they are extracting some signal and they're trying to figure out what is in that signal that we can use to reliably do something every time that person has that thought. So it could be so they they know when they're looking that, when they're yeah. looking up or when they're making the cursor move up, they could be thinking about folding paper airplanes. When they're looking down, they could be thinking about watching the Big Bang Theory. Could be anything. Could be anything. It doesn't matter for the purposes of this approach. There's literally no sense of even trying to use, for example, the uh, the the way that this information is laid out over space in in like a meaningful way. So it's all just purely abstracted mathematical representations is whatever captures the most information is what's being used now i guess the most interesting part of this paper at least to me and maybe this is something you know better than i do but i it, I'll, maybe i can get you started talking about it so the distinction between open loop and closed loop systems and as i'm understanding it most interfaces work in an open loop system. So basically, the person, you know, you ask the person to have this thought. So think up, think up, think up, just think up for a while. We'll record everything that's going on as you're thinking up. And then we'll start tying that to a particular movement of the cursor. That's right. And then so you'd go through an open loop uh, session where you'd imagine moving your hand up or moving the joystick up. And then, you'd, yeah, exactly. You'd encode that and then apply that encoding to a test where you would have the person say, okay, now try to move the cursor to the up location. And they'd think the up thought. And then if everything was working well, you'd see that it was working or not working. And based on how well it was working or not working, you try to take the successful instances from that test and refine the algorithm based on differentiating the successful versus not successful instances and improve the algorithm. The idea of the closed loop system is simply that they're doing training and refinement at the same time. So they just hook them up to the recorder. They're looking at that screen no trials where they're just thinking up and nothing happens. They're just jumping into it. Right. And I, somehow the part that I didn't exactly understand uh, was they were talking about how they start with some computer assistance. So somehow there is some successive approximation happening where the earliest trials, the cursor is, is being guided in the correct direction. And then over time, they release that assistance it sounds a little bit like um biofeedback so that right that closed loop yeah they they they're just trying to in a, a you know bayesian kind of way of dynamically updating the system in response to ongoing feedback build the algorithm as the train is running down the tracks if you will and all all towards the goal of just being faster Maybe a, an intuitive way to think about it is imagining Luke Skywalker trying to lift that X-Wing up. So when he's training with Yoda, he's internally thinking about how it's done. That's in 
open loop system where he just is thinking about it. Then he goes out there in the swamp and Dagobah. And this is a nerdy podcast, by the way. No, this is, I mean, I know you, you hit the absolutely, that is the killer app for this technology is, is the force. The force. 100%. 100%. And that's, that's been known for a long time. And as a slight digression here, I played around with, there's the force trainer EEG system. So that's it's a... Neurofocus, right? Neurosky, I think, is the Neurosky, yeah. maker of Neurosky. the chip. So the basic idea is the same as this complicated brain gate system. It's just you're looking at two electrodes that are placed out on, that are much less invasive, that you just put on basically your forehead and your temple and look for a signal and you've got a display where a, you know, a ball can rise or fall down by how much you're concentrating. Everything I can figure out from those kinds of systems are that it's almost entirely responsive to how tense your temples are. And it it doesn't have much to do with your actual brain waves. It has to do with just the electrical impulses coming off of the muscles on your forehead. So as you're concentrating, you're tensing up a bit. And it seems as though that's the signal that you're getting, but you know it's not. Yeah, I remember when I met with the uh, NeuroSky guys way, 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 way back. Like, you know, I don't remember when this was. I mean, uh, must have been 2004 or something like that in San Francisco, and they were showing me the Star Wars trainer thing. That was their, I mean, it's like the first video game thing that they ever tried, you know? And I, it makes course, perfect sense. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Of course. Of course, that's what you do. And it didn't work like, it worked like shit then, and it works like shit now. Still doesn't work. It just doesn't. Doesn't work. You can't extract that sort of signal from something yeah. as non invasive as a toy would have to be. Right now, yeah. I mean, EEG doesn't work that well. I mean, it works, it works, but it doesn't work well enough to do what we're talking about here. And the reason is the skull is really thick. So the electromagnetic signal coming from a neuron changing its potential, the amount that it does to fire an action potential is very small, very tiny. So small. It's just not, it's not like you're going to stick your finger in someone's brain and you're going to get electrocuted. I mean, it's nothing like that. You would never feel any electricity at all. And by the time you're getting to the outside of the skull, you're really looking only at those signals that are summed responses from huge numbers of neurons that happen to be producing a signal at the same time. Right. So you're anything that's in any way emergent from that has to be such an incredibly powerful signal. There's absolutely no way of knowing that those signals are in fact coming from neurons. Just philosophically, I can't think of even a way that you would unequivocally ever know that. And in practice, you certainly don't know that. And your point exactly, so much of what you're probably recording from is the electrical activity of your muscles contracting. Because you have neurons in your muscles, Muscles also produce their own electrical signals. There's no, there's no, almost no way that that that, that 
what you're doing when you're using the force with the, the neurosky band is has anything to do with what's happening in the brain, except for your brain is telling your forehead to tense up. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that sense, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's see. Okay, so where are we in the paper right now? So we got we, we got to talking about how they encode the features to to control the cursor. I think the last thing to talk about is how well it works. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so they've got this open so the new thing here is they've got this closed loop system where someone just gets popped in and interacts with it with these uh, using these complicated statistical models and eventually can get they can get some signal that's good enough so that they can move that cursor around okay so how well does it work right so one of the things that they mentioned is that <clears throat> at the very beginning is that it's you know the the calibration to be able to uh, successfully move the cursor to one of these eight uh, locations with just purely with brain control is faster than it was in other methods. So for example, one patient was able to successfully do this on the first ever day of closed loop BCI use, acquiring a target 37 seconds after initiating calibration. So with under a minute, they're able to successfully calibrate this machine to be able to move the cursor in a desired direction. And that is not nothing. That's that's Pretty cool. impressive. Pretty cool. And I mean, if you look at the traces, if you you know, look at Figure Two D, they basically have these traces of the how the cursor was moved around on the screen as the patients were trying to go to certain targets, and they kind of meander around a little bit. But they're generally the cursor is generally moving in the right direction most of the time, and it almost always ends up at the target eventually. And then the idea is that you keep the cursor on over the target, and after it's been there for 300 milliseconds, it uh, registers a hit essentially. I, I didn't they didn't they didn't go into like a really elaborated uh, signal detection analysis, like you know how many hits misses, false alarms, and whatever were were uh, were happening here, but definitely get the sense take home is that it basically works. Yeah, so it seems as though. It happens fairly rapidly and then asymptotes. So calibration, if you're looking at how long it takes to calibrate these systems, after about three minutes, it's as good as it's going to be. And as good as it's going to be is three seconds to move that cursor to its target. Right. So after yeah, every three seconds or so, you can select a new target. So if you imagine each of those, yeah, you could somehow you could imagine all different interfaces that you could create. You could move in a robotic arm. Mm-hmm. You could type out a word. You could ask for one of eight different pre-programmed scripts to run off. I mean, any anything that you can imagine. Uh, it's a it's a useful interface potentially. But now also three seconds is a bit of a lag too. If it's it is. Um, I mean, if you're if you if you just made yourself an Iron Man suit and it takes you three seconds to move your arm up, that's kind of slow. It is. It is. It is. And 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 it's certainly slower than saying, "Hey, you know, bring me a sandwich, uh, please." Yeah, but, and yeah, I mean, given that the 
the eventual hope for for something like this is that you know it happens incredibly rapidly and that you're essentially increasing the the or you're decreasing the time that it takes for you to communicate something that a signal should be as fast as thought and that's the goal yeah it's slower it's quite slow and again currently in this current implementation is not in any way useful because there are better ways to do all of these things these patients that are being tested do not need this technology they will not use this technology they do not use this technology in their daily life they have to get literally plugged into the machine there's a port on the top of their head that needs to get plugged in for this to work in any capacity mm -hmm. so these patients who can speak and move their face have no need for this and will never use it and presumably they are participating in the research because they are suffering and they understand that other people are suffering even more mm -hmm. and that their participation could help those people and people like them in the future and they're so they're doing it to help people and and you know because they don't need that part of their brain it's not doing them any good they're they're willing to to sacrifice some pretty considerable discomfort and really rather risky procedure. I mean, having your brain operated on is, is no joke. So, yeah, so they're- Well, they're... at least this prov this provides a clear next step is seeing what happens with a patient with locked-in syndrome to see if you can get this up and running. Right, I don't know what the current state of the art is there. Yeah. But it would be interesting to look at that. Uh, this, I guess the interface issues are, are, are more dramatic in that situations the it's so helpful to get the feedback of being able to say do you understand what i'm saying or is that what you intended to do for example yeah 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 i mean there are systems that that are that are designed to get around this but they're they're cumbersome and difficult to use and yeah without if you didn't know going into the experience ahead of time how you were supposed to do this it, it presents challenges Let's see, are there any other, I, I feel like we've covered the paper fairly well in, in terms of what its goals are and how it's actually working. I think that basically covers it. I think, I think it makes sense to step, so we got really, really deep down, way, way, way into how this stuff works today and brain-computer interfaces. We alluded a bit to how the extracranial uh, devices work or, or don't work. I think it's it's worth get, getting a little bit future oriented and talking about what Elon Musk and his ilk are trying to do. So we're talking. We're uh, are we thinking now about ninth or tenth order non-causal Butterworth filters? I think you probably might even need to go twelve. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. You're thinking far future. <laughs> yeah, okay. far future. Well, you know. why don't we take why don't we take a little break here and then get into some of the cool uh, futuristic robo-apocalypse kind of implications of this stuff.